Um, this is John 7:37 through 52. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. On hearing his words, some of the people said, Surely this man is the prophet. Others said, He is the Messiah. Still others asked, How can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not the scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees, who asked them, why didn't you bring him in? No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards replied. You mean he has deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted? Have any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed in him? No, but this mob that knows nothing of the law, there is a curse on them. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, asked, Does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he has been doing? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Look into it, and you'll find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. Amen. Amen. Yeah, that was awesome. Thank you, Eli. All right, before you take a seat, make sure you meet a couple people around you. Ask them how their week was. Good morning. Uh... Funny about VBS and what we just experienced. Uh, question I have for you that we'll end with is what are you declaring in your life? What I loved about what just unfolded in the last 20 minutes was hearing children and two that have gone through VBS and our youth ministries and now our interns that are leading you in declaring music in declaring who God is. There was declaration. Matthew 18, Jesus says, unless you become like one of these. He's talking about children. And there's something so powerful about that. Uh, something so powerful about watching these kids, you know, lifting up their arms and saying, holy, holy, holy. It, it, it kind of draws me back, and I don't know if it does you, but for us to really ask the question as adults, sometimes we think we've matured and that we've refined you know, our, our social skills and our ability to, to think about how we talk and dialogue. But I think in some of that, we've over-refined ourselves and we find ourselves losing the ability to declare our first love. In the book of Revelation, we'll talk about seven churches and it will say, you did great things, church. You did awesome things. You refuted heresies and you did great works in your cities and he'll say, yet you forgot your first love. In other words, we have to pay attention to what we're declaring. Uh, that was beautiful. And how about Eli? Like, that guy should be teaching right now. <laughs> yeah. I don't know which one of you are responsible to that, but uh, wow. Uh, man, and hearing him read the Word of God, that's just, that's amazing.
Friends, as, as uh, Brenda had said, I think you need to not only affirm, but feel a calling that you pour into the next generation. Our church, uh, as we grow older, that's what's really easy around here. None of us can really stop that. We're growing older. But what we can do is be proactive about getting younger, and that is pouring into the lives of our kids. And, and even if they're not your biological kids, they're still your spiritual family. And that's just an amazing thing to watch unfold. So great job at VBS and Summer Blast and all that. And uh, what's interesting is I love about our church body is what it's declaring outside of here. And I had a great chance to marry a couple that I actually had met with several months ago. And they had come in and as some couples will know, I'm starting to meet that, that don't know God and say, where are you at in your faith? And I'll ask them questions like, you know, what's your faith journey? And they'll say, well, I'm Lutheran or Methodist or AG or Catholic. And they'll go through all that whole list. And I'll say, well, how AG or Methodist or Lutheran or Catholic really are you? And they'll kind of chuckle and they go, well, as a kid, you know, I went through the whole thing and checked the box. And I said, well, are you a Christian? Yeah. And I said, well, what's the word that they would use for those people who follow God? And they go, well, it's Christian. I said, well, that's used three times in the Bible. And really, the, more often than not, uh, the word that's defined or, or used most to define someone who loves God is disciple. I said, so let me ask you a question. Are you a disciple of Jesus? Oh, no, we're not that crazy. I'm not that crazy. We're not that fanatical. Uh, because it's a declaration, isn't it? It's a declaration for who Jesus is. So, this is the couple that I had been meeting with, and I just said, I'll meet with you and marry you as long as I can declare to you who God is and why He designed marriage. And so they agreed. I don't know why these couples agree, but they do. And I, it was the time I went to the board, this was before Easter, and I drew all this whole picture, and, and they looked at each other and me and said, I've never heard that story. And they declared that Jesus is Lord in my office. Now, what, that's a powerful picture. So yesterday I got to marry him, and I could not wait to do that. And I was so excited to do that, and we got to sing worship songs at their wedding and declare God's glory. That's, that is so powerful. And so then I went to the reception, and it's so funny marrying people because um, the pastor has to do all the, you know, the work in the ceremony, but then there's this huge thing that has to be done at the, at the, at the reception, that a pastor has to bless the food. Um, and so I had to rush over there and make sure I was over there to bless the food. And it was at a distillery, um, the Green Bay Distillery. And I laugh because I'm going to bless the food, but I don't think the food needed blessing. I think like the safety after what was going to unfold in the distillery and all that probably needed more prayer. Uh, but I'm saying that because I got to meet uh, a guy, and I, he could even be this here this morning, but it was a great conversation, and I'm not even trying to embarrass him, but I just felt like, man, what he's saying was powerful. Uh, I'm going to use the word exp uh, expletive um, because he had a lot of interesting words that he was using. <laughs> and he's been here four times, and he said, I've got an expletive tell you that I've been to your church expletive four times and I don't know what expletive you're putting in the air conditioning system, but it was expletive crazy. 
Now, he says, this was, was great, I grew up expletive Catholic, um, and I'm kind of like, wow, this guy's awesome. I love the fact that he's just okay with this right now. But he said, um, he goes, at first I didn't like it, but, and then he said, I got an expletive tell you, I, I feel different when I leave. And I, that just, it hit me, and he said, I'm serious. I don't even know you, but I go there, and I hear something that changes me. And I'm like, ah, oh, that's declaration. When, when we stand, when kids like this stand, when we point our lives towards declaring who he is, there's a ripple effect. There's an impact and we don't have to try to go out and tell the story all right because our lives live, as Paul said, we are, it's, it's a spiritual ink written onto our hearts and it writes onto the lives of others. And what a beautiful picture. So what, it was so great to be able to talk to him and said, will you come back? I didn't put an expletive in there, but <laughs> that was pretty fun. It's not giving any of you permission to use those words, but anyway. Uh, this morning, we continue in our story uh, that, that John writes in the Gospel of John, and we've uh, been doing 60 days through the Gospel of John, staying connected to that. I encourage you, just pick up your Bible. If you need a Bible, please get one. We're in John chapter 7. I need to give you a little bit of cultural background and backdrop to what's happening. John, uh, we've seen his in chapter 1 highlighted some things he wants very specifically for us to know. He was one of the last writers of the New Testament, so he has kind of a, a view of seeing all that's written. And so he has a choice to say, I'm going to write mine a little bit unique. We know that his big theme has been believing is seeing, not seeing is believing. We often think in a Greco-Roman culture, in a very influenced about intellectualism, the ideas of knowing things and knowing facts. John says, no, believing first, then God allows you to see. And this is really important and critical for you to understand. John is going to set out to teach us and illuminate these different signs that Jesus does to only to declare that He is King. He is the Son of God. Fully man, fully God. This is what John set out to do. We see in John chapter 1, he says that there's this new light. There's this new light, and it's called logos and logos, however you want to say that. It's this Greek word for the breath, the, 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 the divine word of God. It doesn't necessarily literally mean Bible. It means breathing into the logos to prophets that would bring a word or breathing into creation and creating it. Breathing into writers to, in, to be inspired to write the Word of God. And so we see Logos is defined this way. John 2, new wine. Remember, he turns water to wine. And so John has this theme starting to develop about water. John 3, new birth. He talks to Nicodemus. Key religious leader meets him in the middle of the night because can't figure out who Jesus is. And he, des he, he describes this spiritual birth versus a physical birth. And then the baptism. You see John 4, new life and living water. It's the, the Samaritan woman um, at that well, and he talks about a new life. John 5, new authority, healing water at the pools of the Bethsaida. Trish and I were there in Israel, and it's these pools that people that were sick and, and 
needing healing would wait till the water stirred, it said in the New Testament, until they could find their way in and be healed. John is using that and talking about Jesus who will heal somebody never even getting to the water. John 6, new bread, he'll feed the multitudes and then he actually walks on water. Water tends to be a theme for John. And now we're in John chapter 7. And as Eli just read, there's some latter verses, but I need you to kind of back up and give you a little bit of context. Jesus is going to end up going to what's called the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. And the reason um, this is important because it sets the stage of Jesus' timing for his ministry. And uh, it's, this feast is talked about all the way back in Leviticus chapter 23 where God kind of mandates some festivals that need to happen. Now, push pause for a moment and understand that God orchestrates and designs these holy days called Sabbaths, not just to be on sundown Friday to sundown on Saturday, but to be holy days, festivals and feasts that all had different purposes, but one essential theme throughout all of them. I want you to remember me and declare me. Declare who I am. Declare my glory. And so this was the Feast of Booths. It was held roughly in October. There was a Jewish month for that, but six months uh, generally after the Passover, um, which was in April, uh, one of the seven festivals that God had instructed, and this one was about seven days. It lasted seven, some say nine, but roughly about seven days. The idea for this festival was people would go back to Israel, especially all the males, good Jew males, would go all the way back to Israel or to Jerusalem, and they would build shelters from sticks, from just raw materials of the land, and these little kind of booths, if you will, and would spend their week inside those. They would do that and put them in the, on the roofs of their homes, the streets, the squares, because it represented and helped them remember of their wanderings in the desert in the book of Exodus. Remember? They're exiled from their... They uh, are released from slavery from the Egyptians, and they're wandering in the desert, and it's a celebration of God's provision. Specifically, uh, it's a most popular of three feasts. It's a very joyous one, but specifically, there was a water ceremony that the high priest would go to the pool of Siloam and take a huge thing of water, take it to the temple, and blow the shofar three times every day. And it was in remembrance and a declaration of God's provision of how He provided water in the Negev desert. Now, they wandered in for 40 years, we know, and water is essential. Trish and I were also around the Dead Sea. You don't drink the Dead Sea. Um, it is one of the highest concentrates of salt as far as bodies of water in the world. You need fresh water. And so having water was essential. Remember, Moses struck the rock, and then they had water flowing. And they were provided water throughout 40 years in the desert. That's a miracle. And so they are celebrating that, and it became a, a very big festival. And it has a little bit different spin today, but this is what this Feast of Tabernacles looks like. Now, Jesus is going to be going to this. Now, we find that Jesus is about six months away from His crucifixion. This will be one of the last times He journeys to Jerusalem. Uh, his last time will go, obviously, for his crucifixion, but important that you understand the context of kind of what's happening and unfolding in this story. So going all the way back to John chapter uh, 7, verse 1, 
It says, after this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about Judea because the Jewish leaders were looking for a way to kill him. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples may, there may see your works you do. No one wants to become a public figure uh, who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you're doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe him. We know that James is the half-brother of Jesus. He doubts his brother's claim to being the Son of God. And here we see the insight of a little bit of the agenda of some of his brothers and disciples saying, hey, listen, we think you're a special person. You're, you've got some unique abilities. We want you to really test it out. Now, there are these festivals we've talked about. The Feast of Tabernacles was probably one of the most popular. And that would have meant there were hundreds of thousands of people gathered in this space. The disciples and the brothers of Jesus kind of recognized if we're going to figure out really who Jesus is, let's finally put him on the public stage and let him kind of air out who he is. It's kind of like when we have our presidential elections and they do those final big debates. It's like, let's put him in front of the world and let's see what they really got. This is his own brothers and disciples. Therefore, Jesus told them, my time is not yet here for you. Uh, any time will do. My, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. You go to the festival. I'm not going to this festival because my time is not yet fully come. And after he had said this, he stayed in Galilee. Now, Jesus is going to keep talking about this if you read any of the Gospels, but especially John, my time has not yet come. We probably could push pause here and talk just as Christ followers, as disciples, and say how impatient we really are. How much we really want God to fit our timetable. I thought you were going to answer my prayer, God, because I started praying today. Aren't I getting, isn't this supposed to happen today? Sometimes I wonder if we forget some of the, the, the span in Scripture and how long people waited for answered prayer. And I think sometimes we, we think that the universe, everything centers around us. And we have to recognize that the declaration we have as disciples that the world really revolves around the Father, the Son, the Spirit. And we really simply are asking, as, as we just heard this morning, we're asking and thanking for what He's done. It's His timetable. Jesus is, is glorifying the Father this way. He says, however, His brothers had left for the festival. And then look at this. Jesus goes also, but not publicly. He goes in secret. Now at the festival, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus and asking, where is he? These, these leaders are getting a little bit threatened. Jesus is doing some amazing miracles. He's teaching beyond his training. That means if you were a rabbi, you most likely had been selected by another rabbi as a young Jewish boy, you would have memorized the first five books of the Old Testament by heart. You would have memorized many of the prophetic books in the Old Testament by heart. You would have been uh, so knowledgeable of the Scriptures, but you had to be selected as the best of the best, and then you would be called Talmudim, young disciple to follow another rabbi and spend years understanding that rabbi's way. Jesus didn't do that. 
So Jesus is really about two and a half years in his public ministry, and they're thinking, this is a carpenter's son, and how could he know this stuff? There's, there's a, an, uh, a disturbance in their souls of trying to understand who is he? Who is this man? Verse 12 says, Among the crowds there was this widespread whispering about him, and some said, He is a good man. Isn't this what we discover today? That the name of Jesus Christ in declaring who He is still creates whisperings and yellings and it creates controversy. We, we find this all today even in church settings like this. If we were to go around and ask you the question, who do you think He is? We probably get different responses. One of the responses, He's a good man. He's just a good guy. Others replied, no, he deceives people. That's pretty harsh. That's a drastic change. He's a deceiver. He's, he's tricking people, but no one would say anything publicly for fear of the leaders. In other words, the high religious leaders of the time who had their own police force to manage religious behavior. Could you imagine that? If Green Bay Community Church had its own police force, right? to see how good you were and if you were following all of the right rules. That would be so fun. This culture has this. They have this police force that's, that's kind of watching over their shoulder. And so they're concerned because these leaders aren't saying anything, so they're going to be quiet because they don't want to say the wrong thing. Not until halfway through the festival, Jesus goes up to the temple courts and begins to teach. Jesus has a timetable and a strategy, and so he knows high time of the festival. And so he begins to teach, and the Jews were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without ever having been taught? Verse 16, Jesus answers, my teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. I want to stop there for a second and draw us back to the beginning of, of the Gospel of John. Jesus is going to highlight, or John's going to highlight a scene where John the Baptist is going to say something so profound, and essentially it's something that we should think of today. Some of you will not be in this church years from now. I don't know how long, maybe after this week, I don't know. Uh, you will want to pick another church. You will move out of town. Something will cause you not to be in this. Nothing lasts forever apart from God Himself. But one thing I think you need to take away from and, and recognize in any setting that you're in, John will say, what? I must decrease. He must increase. And any gathering that centers around teaching about who God is, it must be that Jesus must be elevated and increasing and not a person, not a program, not a building, not a campaign, nothing. And friends, if you take nothing this morning, make sure that when you are in a space where someone's identity is becoming bigger than Jesus, run, run. And, and I know that one of the, the things, I love being affirmed, by the way, man, as someone's getting up now, and I'm not trying to embarrass you, that made me nervous. Like, they're, they're running already out of here. Sorry, don't run. 
That was like perfect timing. <laughs> is that I have to guard, because one of the things we can believe is that we're in charge, that community church is the center of the universe, that our programs, that our things that we do, that, that your pastor or a teacher, friends, I am flawed, and I am simply a servant that God's given gifts, but so are you. He must increase, we must decrease. Verse 19, has not Moses given you the law, yet not one of you keeps the law? Why are you trying to kill me? Jesus starts to get pretty personal with uh, some of the questioning. You are demon-possessed. Look how it's just, you're a good man, you're a deceiver, now you're demon-possessed. The crowd answered, who's trying to kill you? You're a crazy man. Jesus said to them, I did one miracle, and you're all amazed. Yet because Moses gave you circumcision, now here's John obviously inserting this, though actually it did not come from Moses, but from the patriarchs, you circumcise a boy on the Sabbath. Now if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath, so the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. Let me explain a couple things, two things. First of all, circumcision uh, is in the Old Testament as a rite of passage for you to be adopted and marked and set apart for God. It was what the Israelites were told to do. That becomes normal practice in the Old Testament. New Testament, that is no longer a part of requirement. Now, some will believe that infant baptism took over for that, and that's not scriptural. That's more just traditional, as some churches will choose to do. So Jesus is attacking this idea of circumcision on kind of their perspective. But the second part of it is, Jesus goes after the rule of rules. You never broke the Sabbath. If you were to look at the Ten Commandments and look at the punishment for most of the Ten Commandments, the worst punishment in severe would be breaking Sabbath. So much so that the architects of the uh, cities all throughout Israel would build cities around a Sabbath day's walk. They would extend the length so you would not break the Sabbath day walk journey. This was a big deal in Israel and still is today. Now, Sabbath is so much of a big deal even in Israel today. Trish and I were there last year and quite fascinating. They have what's called Shabbat clocks. Shabbat clocks are these timer systems that at sundown Friday to sundown Saturday, if you, you kind of put it in your outlet and you plug all your appliances in and it shuts them down because it is considered work if you use your appliances. Now, I was, you know, this ignorant American in a restaurant on Sabbath evening. I was using my iPad, had no idea that that would be work pushing the buttons on the iPad, and so I was told to put it away. Uh, interesting that in elevators, we had no idea that there's a thing on Sabbath or Shabbat called a Shabbat elevator. Now, if you can imagine you're a good Jew, you're not going to push any buttons. Shabbat elevators at sundown Friday, if you're in a 20-story building, well, basically, you get on that and it goes floor one, floor two, floor three, floor four, and it goes back down the same way. We did that one time, never to get on the Shabbat elevator ever again. So the idea of Sabbath is a big one. It was a very big one back then. You did not break Sabbath. And Jesus is saying, 
Really, you allowed, Moses allowed for circumcision to happen, and you were not angry with him. Why, if I've healed the entire body of a person, would you complain about that? He's testing them and he's pushing them to judge not the outside of a life, but the inward reality of a life. Remember in the end of Malachi, God says to the prophet Malachi to warn the nation of Israel, I hate your festivals. I hate your worship services. I can't stand all your sacrifices. In other words, all the things you're doing in religion you thought were great, you missed the heart intention. Verse 25, at that point, some people, uh, some of the people in Jerusalem began to ask, isn't the man that they're trying, isn't this the man they're trying to kill? Here he is speaking publicly, and they're not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Messiah? But we know where this man is from. When the Messiah comes, no one will know where this man's from. They're just debating. If they're not stopping him, maybe he's the Messiah. Well, won't he come from this certain place? They're all debating this. Verse 28, then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out because he could read their minds. Spooky, huh? If I could do that right now, that would be probably disturbing, huh? What you're thinking. Then Jesus, still teaching, says, yes, you know me, and you know where I'm from. I'm not here on my own authority, but he who sent me is true. You did not know him, but I know him because I am from him and he sent me. At this they began to try to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had yet not come. Still, many in the crowd believed in him, and they said, when the Messiah comes, will he perform more signs than this guy? In other words, he's doing so much. I don't know if anybody could do more than what Jesus has already done. The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him, and then the chief priests and the Pharisees of the temple guards went to arrest him. Jesus said, I am with you only for a short time. And I'm going to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me. And where I go, or I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this guy think he's going to go that we can't find him? Will he go where people are, live and scattered among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? They think he's going to run to Greece or something. Where did he mean when he said, you will look for me, but cannot find me? Where I am, you cannot come. They're just amazed. And this is where Eli picked up. So on the last and greatest day, Jesus stood in a loud voice and declares. Hear that? He declares. Jesus makes a declaration of who He is. Let anyone who is thirsty come to Me. There's this water theme again. Whoever believes in Me, as the Scripture says, has rivers of living water flowing from within them. By this He meant the Spirit. By those who believed Him were laid to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. On hearing His words, some of the people said, Surely this man is a prophet. The other ones said, He is the Messiah. I'm going to move forward just because of time because this text gives us so much. But I want to come back to the first question I asked you this morning. Really, the Gospel of John is asking you a question. It's really of what the summary of the entire Scripture is asking, but the Gospels do it well, and specifically John is saying, who are you declaring Jesus is? So this morning we had four responses, and one among the crowds whispering, saying he's a good man. And maybe some of you this morning saying, well, Jesus is a good man. The problem with saying that Jesus is just a good man, 
that you basically are at a religious buffet. You're living your life in such a way that you kind of make it convenient to pick and choose what you want from Jesus and just say he was a good guy. But friends, wasn't Gandhi a good guy? Wasn't Confucius a good man? There are great people all throughout our earth that are good people that don't know God. And for Jesus to just to be a good man means he was a little bit crazy because he thought he was the Son of God. Or he was actually dumb and didn't recognize that he wasn't. It's an interesting claim that he's just a good man. Do you realize even in the Quran they would say that he was a good prophet? He was a good person. For you this morning to not declare that he's Lord, but to say he's just a good man is really kind of living in a religious buffet. Benjamin Franklin decided he did not like the whole of the Bible. Took scissors and cut out all the parts he didn't like and made his own version of the Bible. He had a religious buffet. Some that will claim that Jesus is just a good man are simply just living out like a religious buffet. We see the second response, which you're a deceiver or you're demon-possessed. And some of them would believe maybe that Jesus was an evil man. This was interesting because I read tons of sites this week about uh, atheists' websites about the claims of Christ. And then, uh, really, there's this new term coming out called anti-theism. Atheists believe there's no God. And there's actually very few atheists in our world. There's more of angry Christ followers or angry people that had a bad religious experience and become anti-theist. Say, I'm just going to, yeah, I believe there's something, but I'm going to go against everything you have. I'm going to fight against God. And if that's you this morning that thinking that some of this is evil, then I think you're kind of like a religious masochism. It's, it's, it's like, why would you put yourself in that pain or the, in that way of evil? It doesn't make sense. And for people, I've heard sometimes at church thinking that Jesus was deceived people, and yet they still trying to find God is ridiculous. I teach our kids. I've taught you know, our family. If there's evil, we run from evil. We stay away from that. And if you think Jesus is that, well, we're not going to probably debate that with you because we're probably not going to get through to you. Scripture talks about that those who see Jesus that way, it has to be the truth revealed to them. You're not going to convince those people. Another response in the Gospel of John, though, is that some say he's a prophet. And I think that there are many people that would say that Jesus was not only a good man, boy, he had special power from God. He had that ability given from God, but the claim of that he's walked on water, I don't know if I can buy that. And, and it's definitely a step in the direction to understand that he was definitely empowered by God, but he was the Son of God. And just to say that he was a prophet is a bit of religious delusion. Because to live that way claims that he had these powers and abilities, but then you're going to have to recognize somewhere in that in the story that Jesus begins to declare who he is. He's the Son of God and that he is been John chapter 1, part of creation and a part of the Trinity, then it starts to become delusional because was he a bit loco? Was he this good prophet given these powers by God but didn't have it all together there? Was a bit of a crazy man. 
C.S. Lewis does a much better job, and so uh, we'll talk about this idea of liar, lord, and lunatic. But in this text, we see these three responses. He's a good man. He's an evil deceiver, an ev- a demon-possessed person, which doesn't make any sense. Or he's a prophet. But there's a fourth response. And that response is that he is the Messiah. Messiah simply means the anointed one. Another word for that is the Christ. Jesus' last name, just for information, isn't Christ. We call him Jesus Christ, saying that he is the Messiah, the one. He is the one that is the Son of God, fully man and fully God. And his claim to be that deity, as John is doing in his gospel, is true. Remember what John's theme is? You need to believe, and then God begins to allow you to see. I think some of you this morning maybe need to think about your declaration this morning. Is Jesus Messiah? Because when you say that Jesus is the Messiah, that you have a life of declaration. What does that mean? That you don't have to run around people, telling people you're a Christian. That your life lives out loving Jesus in such a way that you declare Him by how you treat your enemies, by how you spend your money, by how you spend your time, by how you love your spouse, by how you love people that are in need, by how you feed the poor, by how you drive your car, by how you treat people that treat you horribly at work, by how you work through conflict, by why, how you deal with your sin, by how you approach people that are in sin, by how you work at church and serve people in the body. Do you see? We can go on. Your life becomes this declaration that He is Lord of your life. If you simply think that, you're, that Jesus is a good man, your life declares probably nothing. If He's simply a prophet, well, there are other prophets. Your life isn't declaring anything. If you think He's evil, then your probably life is declaring that He's satanic and evil, and you're probably one of those websites going after everything that has a cross on it. But if you this morning say who Jesus is, because that's what Jesus asks the question in Matthew 16 to His disciples at Caesarea Philippi, the Las Vegas of the time, and says to Peter, who do you say I am? And what does, Jesus, and what does Peter say? You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. Who do you say Jesus is this morning? Who are you saying He is? In other words, what is your declaration this morning? Because your life is declaring something. Is it declaring that you're king? That you have the life and the world figured out? I want to do a different response this morning, and I want you to, if you could all bow your heads, and I couldn't do this message without doing it this way, and, and uh, Amar and Sylvia are going to come up and lead us, but I just want you to keep your heads bowed. I want you to imagine something with me for a moment. That Jesus is next to you, and He's asking you, who do you say I am? Am I just a good man? Am I simply a prophet? And this morning, if maybe you've been a person that has been at a religious buffet and kind of picking and choosing what you think is who Jesus is and isn't, 
And maybe for the first time, you're recognizing John's theme of belief, of his Messiahship, is your first step in being able to see. This morning, maybe you can declare that. The Scripture is clear, is that you, you make that declaration in your heart of hearts by saying, Father, I believe in your Son, Jesus Christ, and I receive that sacrifice. That's all you have to do. And say, I want to move away from the sin in my life. You can do that this morning, and you just got to pray to yourself that way and ask God to be Lord and Messiah of your life. But the Scripture says very clearly also that those decisions are made personally, not private. And when we make that personal decision, it is a declaration and our life is lived differently. And the Scripture says that if you declare me before men, I will declare you, introduce you to my Father. I won't be embarrassed about you. And this morning, if you want to declare in your life that Jesus is the Messiah, maybe for the first time, I'm just going to have you stand in your seat. If that's you this morning, to declare for the first time that Jesus is Messiah, just stand. Because some of you have been living not declaring anything and not claiming Him as Messiah. Just stand where you're sitting. Just stay standing if that's you this morning, if you want to declare who He is. Father, we as a church body declare You. And God, we want to say thank You for those maybe for the first time are declaring who Your Son really is. But Father, might it not stop there that we begin to declare Your glory by our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now I want us to do something this morning as we go to the table and we go to take the bread and cup. If you're new here, it's the way we respond to truth. And as Mar and Sylvia lead us, our declaration as we go to that table has to be, you can't take the blood and body of Christ and, and not declare Him through the rest of your life. This is a reminder of the declaration that's necessary with the whole of your life, not part of it. We're not set out on this earth just to be good people. We're to be declarations of His glory. Might communion table this morning do that? So let us sing together and worship and go to communion.